Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I have as my guest, Ricky Arundel. Ricky is trans. She's a gender speaker. She's a champion of diversity and inclusion at a fundamental practical level. None of the wishy-washy, woke, dancing around the handbags type of approach. You're in for a bit of a treat because we're going to see the world through the eyes of Ricky and we're going to explore what being trans means, what diversity really means, what inclusion really means. And it's going to be an uncomfortable episode, I suspect. Ricky, welcome. Well, what an introduction. Yeah. Some discomfort, but uh, hopefully actually some fun insights into a world that most people don't even know exists. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's start with the million dollar question that no one ever asks, I'm sure, from our previous conversation, which is, what are the differences between living as a man and living as a woman? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a question very few people ask. I was quite shocked when I changed gender. I think it's, it's worth getting people to understand this is not about going through some kind of surgery and hormones and everything else. This is actually about changing my identity in terms of how other people see me and therefore how they're going to interact with me. From the moment we're born, are you a boy, are you a girl? And that sets the rules for engagement for the rest of your life. And there are an awful lot of things that go on, which, yeah, as men growing up, as women growing up, we take for granted because that's the way it is. Don't ever assume and realize that actually it's very different. Uh, on the other side. So just simple things like the numbers are talking. I get into a conversation and somebody who works very masculine the way you're talking. Uh, and I got loads and loads of people initially were really having a go at me because it was like I was bringing male energy into a female space and that was unacceptable. So I had to really tone down how I engaged in a conversation because when men get involved in a conversation, it's a competition with battle in order to get our points across. And if you're telling jokes around the bar, it's who can tell the funniest jokes. You're not listening to the joke. You're waiting to get your joke in. And that's a, that's just part of the way in which men engage and banter with each other. It's not at all the way that women engage. And if you do that in a women's space, instantly you'll be pushed away. So I found I had to be much more accommodating, much more listening to what was happening. It's very much an interactive process of a, of a story. People add bits and pieces in. You don't stand back and listen, let somebody hold floor. You become much more engaged. So that was the first thing. I had no idea how to dress. Absolutely no idea. I thought I did, but I discovered that style and dress is a, it's a quite a, it's an ongoing learning process for women. From the moment they are very young, they're being taught how to accessorize, what color goes with what and everything else. I didn't get any of that as a man. And suddenly I had to learn it. I had to go take lessons from a image consultant, go and get makeup lessons. I had to put makeup on and not look like, a, you know, some kind of drag queen. Not that I have any problem with drag queens, but it doesn't. The whole point for me is that I did not want to be seen walking down the street. I didn't want people to see me as a trans woman. I wanted to see them to see me as a woman. And I think this is the thing that most people don't get, that you know, as a trans person, we want to be invisible. Now, as it happens in my business, I want to be very visible. That created huge conflict for me 
in my life. But that's some of the, the issues about being man and woman, it is very different. And you have to learn it or you'll be literally pushed away by the other groups. Okay, so those are some really interesting insights. The, the question going through many people's minds is, how and when did you realise that you wanted to be a woman? So the first time anything got spotted was when I was about six. And the head teacher at a primary school I went to, a little village in Somerset, had spotted that I didn't seem to get on with kids of my own age. So I was whisked off to a child psychiatrist to assess me and said, oh, he's a couple of years ahead of his age mentally, put him up a year in class, that will probably fix it. And that's what happened. The fact is, of course, that around about that age, girls are a couple of years ahead of boys. By the time we get to puberty, everything starts, you know, seems to equalise out and either girls slow down or boys speed up. We all become up. stupid. Sorry? We all become really stupid. Yeah, absolutely. Hormones hit and the only thing we're interested in is sex. So it's, uh, yeah, so what they hadn't seen, of course, was in my home at Behaviour, I always preferred girls' comics. I really hated football, rugby, cricket. Any of those boys, and the whole boisterousness of boys engaging, which I, I think people think, that women actually touch each other more than men. But actually it's not, because men often are very heavily involved in contact sport, contact play, contact engagement where girls don't. And I didn't like that whole quite boisterous contact uh, sport, the wrestling, and, and you know, not for me at all. So the problem wasn't that I didn't get on with kids my own age. The problem was I didn't get on with boys. But because at that age we're so split and polarised. You know, even at the schools I went to, there was a boys' entrance to the school and a girls' entrance. You know, boys were, did one activity, girls did another. And rather than allowing integration, we're, we're separated and cr- these separate worlds are all created. So I actually started to understand a little bit more. Around about a couple of years later, we'd moved to another place. I'd been put back down a year at school, really having a bad time. And I'd started cross-dressing, and I have no idea why. Since 1957, 58, that sort of time. So this is before the term transgender had even been invented. I had absolutely no idea why I wanted to wear my mum's knickers and bras and why I wanted to get dressed up in women's clothes. Just couldn't get it. I did get that it wasn't something I would talk to other people about. And that was really brought home to me. I had a friend at school, part of a really big family, 11 kids. He was in the middle. And as, you know, in a relatively poor family, when you're in a, a big family, lots of hand-me-down clothes. So he always ended up getting his sister's clothes because most of his older siblings were girls. And he arrived at school wearing a pair of girls' knickers. We had to get changed for cross-country running. One of the boys spotted it. Well, it was like a scene out of Lord of the Flies. They just piled in, jeering, laughing, joking, making him feel really bad. He was my friend, but, you know, did I get involved and try and protect him? God, no. On the one hand, I was jealous that he was able to wear his girls' girls' knickers, but on the other hand, I saw what was happening. And I thought, no, no way. I can't tell anyone about this. Can't tell friends, can't tell teachers, can't tell parents, brothers, sisters, nobody. So at uh, that age, that must bring a huge psychological burden. It, it was because it, it made me, for most of my childhood, a bit of a loner. This was a secret no one could know about. I had places where I could stash and hide. I lived in a big a pub for most of my childhood. And we had a big, very, very high old bar, uh, 
stables, I think, have been converted into a garage. But it had a sort of high shelf somewhere where I could, and I had little places where I could hide clothes so I could actually you know, take some clothes and go out cycling and just put some on, you know, underwear underneath. And it was, it all sounds as if it's a little bit seedy, but it's just about trying to express myself in a way I felt was right, but in a world where I couldn't let anyone see it. That was the way it was right the way through. I, I didn't tell anyone about that until I was just about to get married. And I decided then I, would, uh, I wouldn't get married without her knowing. That must have been an interesting conversation. <laughs> well, what I did was I said, I've got this really dark secret. I don't, I've never told anyone. I don't, I, I, I can't, no, no, I can't tell you. And that was it for the next two or three weeks. What's his secret? Were you an axe murderer? Have you done this? Have you killed? And every conceivable thing that could that you could possibly do came up. Well, did you do this? Did you rob a bank? Did you <laughs> have you beat, beat somebody up? Have you? And eventually, I said, "Oh, look, I'll tell you. I'm transgender." Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> so it actually worked for me because she'd imagined all these terrible things that could happen when I said I'm transgender. It was like, "Oh, really? Is that it?" And to start with, there was a little bit of playfulness around it. It was actually, I, I, yeah, I think a lot of people like the idea of men showing some feminine side, some, you know, it's like, oh, you're not just macho man. And so initially it started and then got pregnant, the kids along, and, you know, we moved to a, a more middle-class area from, I literally stood in Leightonstone in a flat, and we'd moved up to Bedfordshire. And all of a sudden, it was, I don't want the friends to know. I don't want the families to know. I don't want the kids to see. So everything then went back into the closet. And ultimately, it was probably the reason the, the marriage failed, because I couldn't be the macho enough man. Okay, that's tough. And I do appreciate you being so open. So help me understand this. In terms of the reception that you receive when you've applied for jobs or you've tried to engage with prospective customers. Right. So I stayed deeply in the closet for most of my career. I overheard conversations and I'd hear people talking about things. And if if some yeah, if somebody who was trans turned up or you saw somebody or there was something in the news about trans, you've got to remember in those early days that if, if somebody transitioned, it was almost always going to be some kind of it was news of the world, people type topics. A friend of mine is a, a lawyer. Somebody who he had worked at his firm uh, knew about him being trans, and uh, he only cross-dressed and, and, and identified as male. And all of a sudden, they they had a big falling out, so he went to the press. You know, the headlines: lawyer bears his frilly briefs. It was. Now, what people didn't know was his parents didn't know, his kids didn't know, his wife didn't know. And within a space of six months, he was ostracized by the family. Marriage was in ruins. Our kids didn't want to see him. And his whole life utterly and completely wrecked because one disgruntled employee decided to reveal all. So I'd lived with that knowledge. I told my partner that relationship had uh, eventually broken up. I went, went into another fairly short relationship, although it's, it's had a child in it. In each case, I've told people I've been in a relationship with that, that I'm trans. And in some ways, it was, oh, well, it's interesting, but, you know, let's not actually. 
I think people who are in a relationship or contact with a trans person feel as uncomfortable as a trans person in terms of how will other people react. And that's the big challenge that I might get criticism, but so will my kids, so will my partner, and so will... And I had to be very careful. If, if people found out my kids had a trans person as a, as a parent, they are going to get bullied for that. The biggest criticism I got was people saying to me, how could you do this to your wife? How could you do this to your family? And I don't think people understand. You know, I, When I came out, I was 50. I had a really good career. I was the technology guru in the financial services industry. I wrote for all the financial services press, spoke internationally. I just set up the Professional Speaking Association. Uh, I was a master of a Freemason's Lodge. I hadn't paid my taxes. <laughs> Got absolutely wiped by the, by the Inland Revenue. Lost my house. Relationship fell apart. Company I was doing most of the work with got taken over and cancelled their conference program. So suddenly I was out of a relationship, out of not a lot of work happening. And uh, I thought, if I'm going to come out, this is the time to do it. Everything else had gone. What, what, what else could go wrong? And I'd come out to a couple of people and said, look, this is what's happening. And I, I did a lot of work for this big technology company. Uh, that was most of the work I've been doing. And they were just closing everything down. So we're going to have a big final party. It always been a big fancy dress party every year. And then they said, oh, no, this is going to be black tie. I said, well, no problem. I'm still going to turn up in a sequin dress and everything else. And it was interesting. Half the people thought that was amazing and actually became more friends with me. And the other half never, ever spoke to me again. <laughs> okay. So 50 years of effectively not being who you really are. Absolutely. And hiding, carrying all that burden. Yeah. Why is there so much hate? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? The hate comes from two parts. Um, and it's different when it comes... I think... I, I, I don't want to generalise on uh, over gender on this, but there is a bit of a gender split here. The groups who don't like trans people, um, there are religious groups. And they basically... We're wrapped up into the whole LGBTQ community, and you know we're we're rejected uh, from from that perspective. There's even a quote in the Bible, I think, in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-two, verse five: "You know, man shall not wish that that which pertains to women, or women that for men." It's actually completely mistranslated when you go back to the original. It's nothing to do with cross-dressing. <laughs> Why would it be? It was written at a time when men and women all wore the same thing. They all wore smocks and a in the Sinai Desert, so <laughs> utterly stupid thing. But the problem is all this stuff about homosexuality and such like, there are only very tiny little mentions in odd occasions in the Bible, but it's been turned into an obsession. So that's part of the problem. So there's this religious group that really, really don't like anything to do with trans or anything to do with sexuality or whatever. There's a second group, and this is oddly because it's, actually from within the LGBT community, and it's radical feminist lesbians in the main. Not all radical feminist lesbians, a particular group who call themselves gender critical have been named TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. It all started with a music festival in um, Michigan where they said, no, 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 all women but no trans. Trans women are not women. A couple of academics have really gone to town on it, again, from the same background. 
So when I did my master's degree, I, I wasn't really fully aware of this. I'd sort of heard about it, but suddenly doing a master's degree, I suddenly was confronted with all this academic bile. Jermaine Greer in her book has written two or three really, really awful chapters, uh, putting down trans people and promoting a negative agenda that all, it essentially says all men are rapists, trans women are men, therefore trans women are rapists. That's the basic premise of their uh, argument. It's all about, you know, excluding, excluding men from spaces. And you used to be a man, therefore you're always a man, therefore you're excluded as well. So it makes it very difficult. Trans women do get raped as much as um, ordinary women, but suddenly find if they go to a rape support centre, there isn't any help because they're now labelled as men. It's not all rape support centres, it's the ones that are run by people who have this negative attitude. The third group are parents of children who identify as trans and don't want them to. And they have started to band together. There's a, a website called Mumsnet. There's a huge number of them there. There's a big issue, particularly because there's been a big surge of women transitioning to men, young women transitioning to men, becoming trans men. Nobody wants them to have surgery, and there's been this huge, big pressure. There was supposed to be a big review and change to the Gender Recognition Act, but this lobby is so powerful and has managed to catch the ear of a lot of feminists and support it, and it's actually managed to stop the review of the, of the uh, legislation. We've got a equality minister, Liz Truska, who's seems to be definitely has the ear of these negative groups. So that's on that's on the side which is largely women, but there are some men involved in that. On the male side, I think it's a fear. I think from a men's perspective, if if I if I scrub up well and look and which I can, well used to is definitely probably not so much now at 70, but back at 50, I could I even stopped traffic in Dublin once. So it's possible to look really good. And therefore, there's a possibility somebody comes up and tries to chat me up, finds out, oh, God, it's not actually a man, it's a woman. A woman, it's a man. And yeah, so many trans people get themselves beaten up simply because somebody thought they were female. And in Brazil, it's deadly. 200 trans women every year murdered, most of whom are in the sex industry, most of whom murdered by clients who thought they were women, discovered they were men. And sometimes it's the men actually wanted a trans woman, but now they don't want anybody else to know that they wanted a trans woman. These, these are the sorts of... So there's a, a very, very uncomfortable and very violent side. I've been three or four occasions where I've just been able to get myself out of potentially getting beaten up because somebody's discovered and they had actually made a pass at me and then realised what had happened. So... Okay. So... If you take the religious argument, it's always terribly inflammatory. You know, it's a taboo. It's unnatural. Why is it that there is, it's so difficult for people to accept other people? Oh, I think this takes us into the whole field and world of social identity. I think there is an inherent part of humanity and it's probably a part which saves our lives, that we, we recognise our tribe and we recognise an opposition tribe, a tribe that might be you know, threatening to us or dangerous to us. And 
we get a lot of our, our sense of belonging, our sense of who we are from the groups that we belong to, whether that's our religious group, our, our local town, our local football team, or whatever. And then we build up on that. Now, I, when I was a teenager, it was the time of mods and rockers. Uh, I liked motorbikes, so I ended up as a rocker. So that means I had leather jackets and did stupid things, riding bikes too fast down bendy hills, and you get badges for doing stupid things in the name of courage. And of course, then we'd, 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 we'd whisk ourselves off down to the South Coast, Weymouth and places, Bournemouth. And the mods would be there as well in great. So we'd have two or three hundred rockers and two or three hundred mods and a bit of a bit of a clash and a battle on the seafront, which got us into the press. So you've got this social identity and it, it can become and it's you you big up your group and you put down the other group. And I think that that's happened throughout history, country against country, town against town, football team against football team, invaders against the uh, invadees, whatever you <laughs> the people who've, who've lost out. And so it's, I think it's an instinctive, natural thing. The problem is that we're in an increasingly globalised world where, where we have to learn to get on with everybody. I grew up with homosexuality illegal. My father was quite homophobic. I'll share one story because this is, it wasn't uncomfortable for me, but it, it was potentially d- d- dangerous. I we lived in a village and not far away, there was a big stately home run by, owned by a very wealthy businessman, very senior Freemason, all sorts of things. And every year he'd have a village fete, a fete in the gardens and grounds of his home. Uh, he had a swimming pool there, yeah, an open, open air heated swimming pool. I absolutely loved swimming, but I was only about 12 at the time. So I went down there, I'm swimming, having a good time in the fete. And he comes up to me and says, um, oh, would you, you can come along and swim in the mornings if you like here. We, we have a, the boys' time is at eight o'clock in the morning. And uh, of course, as we're all boys together, no need to bother with trunks or anything. I had no sense that I was being groomed by a paedophile. Absolutely none whatsoever. So I started going down there. was given a job working on the farm, on the estate. Did, didn't realise the two women who ran the estate were lesbians. That you know, sort of emerged later that I understood that. And I spent a few weeks swimming in the morning and things were, were progressing. I was suddenly finding, oh, let me give you a massage in the city. So he was progressively grooming me, but I didn't get any sense of fear. It was just what was happening. Now, one day I got to arrive and was told, I'm sorry, no, you can't come anymore. I'm sorry, you and you don't have a job and that's it, you're gone. And I was really upset. I had no idea why it had happened. My parents consoled me, but I later realized that my dad had probably interfered. I must have said something about what was happening. They realized what was going on. A phone call was made and everything stopped. That was how those sorts of things were dealt with. But it was odd for me because I hadn't felt a sense of that there's anything odd. I grew up with this environment of homophobia. I wanted to hide who I was. So if anything, that would make me do things which were very homophobic in things I might say or things I might do, because I just wanted to throw off any suspicions or possibilities that I might be one of them. Because it was, I think when 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 the law says it's illegal, when the law says this, this can't be done, and everybody around you thinks it's wrong, it's very difficult then to stand up and say, oh, no, I'm one of those, I think it's actually okay. And so we stayed in the closet. 
I'd hold pride. I know that I've come across people my age who uh, come to pride and they said, you know, this is first time in 50 years I've dared to walk down the street holding hands with my partner. So I, I know that a lot of people still live in fear because we grew up in an environment where it was just absolutely not acceptable. And trans was just tossed into the same. It's all part of the same. It's not very masculine, and therefore it must be go, must be gay. Okay. So, again, feel free to uh, not answer. Are you homosexual, bisexual? I think probably I now identify as non-binary, trans-feminine non-binary. What does that mean for those? No, I've got to <laughs> This is a whole new world. Um, it's a millennial world that I actually sort of um, have to inhabit as well. So I'm trying to, you know, it's, it's actually helping me to understand because it's a very big movement amongst younger people. They're currently reckoned to be between a quarter of a million and a half a million people in the UK who identify as neither male nor female. Right. Nothing to do with the physical body. It's to do with how our gender identity. And that's the sense of who we are in our brains. Now, we don't know why it doesn't go. Yeah, most people born with a male body, feel male, feel comfortable about it, live and grow up, live life happy male. That's 99% of the population. Oh, yeah, you grow, grow up female. You know, you either you, know, you grow up comfortable with your body, comfortable with your gender, and everything else. Somehow, it seems that during fetal development, you either get too much or too little testosterone, and it's testosterone which is the key ingredient. If you don't get testosterone, the body will be female. If you do get testosterone, it will masculinize or it will be male. So, the more testosterone you get, the more male you're going to get, and and that's seems to be how it works. It's very difficult to figure out exactly what's going on because you can't look inside a brain. We use an MRI scan and we can see differences between men and women. You can wait till somebody's dead, you can open the brain and slice it all up and you can see differences. But what we don't know is are the differences when you get to die because of the way you've lived or were they there right from the beginning? And there's no way to go in and have a look while it's in process, because, you know, that tends to mess the brain up a little bit. So it's very difficult to try and figure out why, but that's basically what's going on now. I think what's been happening, and not even trans people are going to like this, but there we go. I think that we get this sort of hardwiring in the brain, which says slight mismatch or really bad mismatch between the brain, which is now being feminized, and the body, which is masculine, or difference between your know, brain is feminized, yeah, body. Oh, sorry, the other way around. Other sorry. way around. Yeah. So, does that mean you then change completely from one to the other? Because we have a society which says there are male and there are female, and there is nothing in between. It's one or the other. We feel forced to go into one of these groups. Now, masculinity, and I got this when I when I did my master's degree, I was I did quite a bit of study on masculinity. Masculinity essentially is anything that isn't feminine. So what we've done is we've actually separated and we've said, all right, these are masculine, these are feminine. And even to the way of words, if you take the way you would describe a leader, a, mas- a male leader, uh, decisive, assertive, you know, powerful. Those are the kinds of words we tend to talk about powerful leaders. Take those same words and apply them to a woman, and everybody goes, oh, 
ice bitch because we don't want women to have those masculine traits. And the same way, if you think of a great women, leaders might be nurturing, empowering, supportive. You, know, and you think, well, no, we don't want a wuss of a leader for a man. So, so even the language we use is separated into stuff we would apply to men, stuff we'd apply to women. And it's sometimes very subtle. Now, we've been trying to break this all my life. The first, you know, the second wave of feminism was in the 1970s. When I grew up, my kids were encouraged to have dolls. Yeah, boys were encouraged to have dolls. We tried to get rid of that and, and allow them to choose the, their path out because I wasn't out to them. They didn't know, but I didn't want them to have those same constraints of pressuring into, you've got to be do this if you're a boy, you've got to do this if you're a girl. And, and they're fine. They're, they're okay. They're comfortable. Not, none of them are gay. None of them are, are trans. Would have been happy if they were, but but they don't have any issues with gender. And what's interesting is they don't have any issues with other people who have a different gender. So the problems, part of the problems start with, with the way we're brought up. If you're brought up to think that homosexuality is wrong, it's, it's terrible, and then your kids suddenly are gay, that creates a huge challenge. Now, I've gone off on okay. a bit of a tangent now. So got, back, got back to non-binary. How did non-binary, you- yeah. So a lot of pressure on people to be one or the other. When I was transitioning, it took me about two years to finally get to the point where I was saying, right, I'm going to identify as female. And so what happened was I became increasingly feminized as male. And I went to see my uh, youngest daughter who lives in Glastonbury and uh, went down to see her, got a phone call afterwards. She said, Dad, still calls me Dad, she said, please, if you're going to come as a man, that's cool. If you're going to come as a woman, I can handle that. I can tell people you're my aunt. But if you come somewhere in between, it really gives me a lot of shit. <laughs> she was at school. And if she was seen with me as somebody who was a feminine man, masculine woman, somewhere in between, that was going to mean she was going to get bullied. She was going to get a lot of flack. So I think that there is an enormous amount of social pressure particularly on trans women, that, you know, if you want to move, you, you can't just, gen, you, you can get so far, you get about as far as pink shirt, and then all social societies are going to say, oh, are you gay? Are you And, and all of that stuff happens. So you move all the way, completely identify. So I know a lot of trans women who've transitioned completely, they've gone through surgery as well, had everything done, and then they reconstruct their history as a woman and go into what's called stealth. They basically don't tell anyone. I even know trans women who have got married, never told their husbands that they were born there, fully and completely transitioned. And the same thing happens with women. Now, if women take testo- uh, going to male, I came across somebody who was being had transitioned for 45 years, and no one knew. None of his friends knew, nobody. His partner did, but nobody else. You know, you take testosterone after two years, any woman will look male. They'll probably have lost some hair. They almost always grow beards. Most of my trans men, male friends, have grown a beard. It's like, once you've grown a beard, that's a, a real symbol of I'm masculine. I don't know. <laughs> so I think now, go back to non-binary. We, we've got, before we started doing surgery, which is yeah, more than 100 years ago, People transition, but not necessarily all the way. We see this in the North American Indians, all sorts of cultures that still exist where they have three or four different genders. And people can 
be a masculine woman or a feminine man or intersex people can be both men and women or neither men and female. The Hidra in India define themselves as neither male nor female. There's about five million of them. We've got a society which is so gendered. Our laws are all stuck, are stuck in it. It's very hard. Court case just happened a couple of weeks ago. Somebody has taken the British government to court demanding that their passport is changed to X. We will hear the uh, summary next uh, this week, I think, is uh, we're going to actually hear the result. It's the Supreme Court now trying to decide, does Britain have to allow people to have X on their passport and choose to be non-binary? Some countries do it. Some states in America will do it. But it's a slow process. Because if I say X, the question then is, which prison do you send me to? Right. What services are available to me? All sorts of other things start to unravel because we're so locked into this binary uh, system. But there is a lot of people now identifying non-binary, and it's a movement. It's moved too far now. It's not. Nothing's going to make it go back. So moving to the business world then, have you ever noticed any significant difference in the way you are treated as a man versus as a woman? Yes. First time I noticed it, because I'm, I'm, I'm in the meetings industry, so I often run meetings. I've got something organised. And I'll turn up, having briefed the hotel by email or, or letter uh, on what I want, how I want a room set up and arrive and find inevitably uh, it hasn't been set up the way I asked. It's been set up the way they always set up meetings. And I do it differently. So I, I and I usually have just call somebody, look, can you just change this? Just change, change the layout of the chairs, move this and you know, move the screen over there. A whole bunch of things that I want done. One of the first times I had to make a change like this as a woman, the hotel events manager went and asked my male assistant if it was okay to make the changes. <laughs> so there we go. And it was interesting. I think when I... I I noticed differences in the way people would treat me. Yeah. People don't listen so well if something if something's coming from a woman to if it's coming from a man. It, it, now, I have a quite powerful voice, which makes people sort of sit back a little bit. I made the decision not to change my voice. I'm a speaker. Didn't make sense to try and have a pretend voice. This is, you know, who I am. But I've noticed differences in the way in which men and women do things. So, so I sat on quite a few recruitment panels now, this is about the way in which people are, it's not so much the way we're treated, this is the way in which people change. We've got a job out, uh, we'd, we'd put a job out, a man would look at the uh, at all the job requirements and think, oh, I pick, I tick two or three of those, I'll give that a go. So these are all the essential requirements, so there's 20 things that we need, I tick three of them, let's go for it. A woman looks at the list and thinks, oh, I've only got 19 of those, no, I won't be able to get in that job. I've definitely seen that. And it just, it, it, I'm driving down the street and I see a couple about to cross the road. The man will walk out in front of me and defy me to run him down. The woman will stand to make sure I'm absolutely definitely stopping before she moves out. So it's about risk taking. So men will take risks, women tend not to. They're just little time things. I teach public speaking and I have noticed that women are much more uncomfortable standing in front of an audience. Now, I didn't understand that until I had an experience walking down King's Road in Chelsea. Very, very attractive woman in front of me. And I just was, as I was walking past her, I suddenly felt this weird 
energy. And I thought, what the hell's going on? And she was, when I say very attractive, it was a very sunny day. She was very well tanned and was wearing an orange figure-hugging dress, which was almost the same colour as her skin. So she stood out. And every man in every taxi, bus, in every window, in every shop, everywhere, all male eyes were glued on watching her walk down the street. And she seemed to be enjoying it. But as I walked past her, I felt that strange energy so powerful. I thought, whoa, 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 what's that? And it's that energy of being looked at. It's the same energy you get when you go on stage, when suddenly you have a bit of quiet and all of a sudden all eyes are on you waiting for the next thing. And it can be very uncomfortable, quite unnerving. Um, And I realised that if women live with this all their lives from the age of 11 years, 12 years old, I can understand if that's an uncomfortable one because that's the sexual energy they're getting. And they get on stage and everybody's looking at them, maybe sometimes with the same energy. That makes it a very uncomfortable experience that they have to overcome. No one's ever looked at me down the street and created sexual energy from the observation. So, okay, let let me ask this then. Trying to bring an understanding of otherness into a business and the value of diversity, how would you even start when you start looking at other, we've got to look at all, all aspects of it. You know, people who are disabled, people who are black, Muslim, uh, different religions. I'm, I'm specifically thinking about religions which, where it's very obvious because of dress, dress uh, the way you are. Because I had a big problem with the Muslim faith. Well, not so much the Muslim faith, but with the way in which I perceive women to be treated within the Muslim faith. This whole idea of having to cover up having to show deference to men all the time. And I, I, and I found it very, very, very difficult. And I've, I felt as if those women were being pressured into that. So I made a point of actually starting to understand it and, and talk to, to women and, and realised that actually it's a protection because they you know, comply with that and it fits in their religious faith and it's been something that they've, been, they've grown up with all their life. And as a consequence, they are treated with respect. If they take that off, if they westernize, then they become treated like prostitutes. Not all the kind, but that, that's... So, so it was beginning to understand that difference. I thought, okay, but I have to accept. If that is comf- make, make somebody comfortable, in business, it should be about how well you do the job. How good are you at the, at the job that you're doing? With trans people, a, a friend, friend of mine runs a beauty salon and... I did a lot of work with them. We made a point of trying to make sure we employed trans people where, where possible. I ran a support service for a while. Uh, and we had a trans woman came in and she turned up to the beauty salon uh, in a very really tatty denim skirt and a top which was way too low and was more for you know, what you'd wear if you were going in, uh, out for a night out. Uh, and Michelle looked at her and said, no, 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 you can't. That, that's just not okay. Popped across the road to a small charity shop, got us some nice black trousers and a black top, and said, "Right now, this is what you've got to learn. You know, you've, you've got to adapt your appearance to suit the circumstances." I don't know whether you have, have you ever heard the, the speaker Zig Ziglar. Have you heard of him? Yeah, yeah. I actually got to know Zig, met him in in um, in the states, and I went to a couple of his uh, seminars and things when he was over here. And he, he said something really interesting once. Somebody asked him a question. He said, "What should I wear?" And this was talking about sales meetings and things. And he said, if I notice what you're wearing, you're wearing the wrong clothes. 
And I thought that was very interesting. It's about blending in. So if I go somewhere, if I go to work with you know with a, a Californian high-tech company wearing a business suit, I'm gonna stand out like a sore thumb because everybody is in relaxed casual clothes. I remember when I was a hippie, you know, I couldn't go. I also worked in the insurance industry. I couldn't go into a house where there were lots of, uh, of far out, you know, stoned out hippies looking like I was a police officer because that was just going to cause pandemonium and chaos. You have to fit in. So I make sure now where I'm going, you wear what, what fits in. That is quite difficult within an environment, within a, a work environment. Up until now, it's been, you know, make sure that I, I dress in a very professional way as a woman and arrive. Just be very careful. The important thing is not to wear clothes that are way too sexy, clothes that are, you know, are inappropriate. Uh, I had another trans friend who used to wear very thin skirts. Well, you know, thin skirts might be fine if you've got a female body, but not if there is a huge bulge. You know, so they're just, it's about common sense and blending in. People don't want to be embarrassed because they're standing next to you. Things are changing. If you go to the office with young people now, you're going to find such a variety of images, people with you know big shocks of hair, punks. and you know, If that's an environment you're in, which is very, very colourful, then you won't blend in if you're too straight. It's the thing. But I, I think it's, just a, it's, it's all about this social identity thing. You need to be able to fit in and blend in with where you are. Now, what is happening is companies increasingly all organizations increasingly now are saying, no, we, we have to have an environment where if you wear a hibab, then it's fine. If you're in a wheelchair, that's fine. So we've got this diverse community with fairly loose rules about what you should and shouldn't wear. Well, I think in principle, I'm seeing that happen. But increasingly what I'm observing is whilst organizations can attract difference, they struggle to keep it because of the undercurrents, the microaggressions, the banter, and increasingly where I see a need if we are going to accept difference, and I think fundamentally we should, then we need to become more aware of the language that we use, the behavior that we exhibit to ensure that people feel welcomed and assimilated which doesn't mean homogenized. I mean, one of the things that I, when I'm doing transgender, most of my work is transgender awareness training. And uh, at the moment, the big demand from companies is about how do we become trans allies? How do we, how we, can we support this? The challenges that you're going to face are, you know, somebody who used to be a man is now turning up in the female toilets. How do we cope with that? Or somebody who's a used to be a woman, is now going into the male toilets and feeling very uncomfortable uh, about that and, you know, not used to the banter. Most important thing is people have to educate themselves and the organisation has to take a responsibility for making sure that that education takes place, that people understand what's happening. And I think in those cases, it's also important that the training is delivered by someone from, if it's trans training, get a trans trainer. If it's, you know, training about Islamic, Get, make sure it's a Muslim trainer. If it's a black, about race, make sure it's black Chinese. You have to make sure that you've got people doing and delivering the training who have lived experience within the culture that you're trying to you know, raise awareness of. 
when I first started doing the training, I used to ask the question, how many of you have never met a trans person knowingly? And around 75% of every audience would put their hands up. Now it's 20, 25% have never knowingly met a trans person. But the other thing I've noticed is that if I look at all my audiences over the past 15, 20 years, it's been 80% female. So I only get a male audience if I'm going into a fire service, a prison, police, and it's been made mandatory. So everybody's got to turn up. And I'll see all the blokes at the back, you know, arms folded and not engaging very much. Because there is a fear, I think, that if they show any interest in this, that everybody will think I'm gay. I think men have a real uncomfortable feeling. Not all men, but quite a lot of men have a very uncomfortable feeling about anybody thinking that they might be. So actually, the first bridge to cross is overcoming the homophobia. Yeah. Men are still not voluntarily finding out about sexual orientation, finding out about trans issues, finding out about diversity generally. It's getting better. I think there is an enormous amount of pressure on men to conform to what we see as you know, raw masculinity. This got to be butch, got to be macho, got to be... I think kids grow up trying to match up to this completely unachievable ideal of what it seems what, what masculinity is all about. Isn't the equivalent women comparing themselves oh, exactly. to impossible Photoshop models? Yes. I remember one of my clients said men and women think about the same thing every 30 seconds, women's bodies. And there is an element of truth in this because I think. Women are on show to everybody, whereas your typical male is either strutting their stuff and peacocking to try and be noticed, or they're trying to assimilate into their group. It's rare that you find people who are willing to sit on the margins and be intentionally different. I often see the difference in, in them because obviously I grew up you know, in male environments, I'm, you know, I'm still a Freemason. Um, so I've been you know, in you know, all-male environments a lot. The financial services industry, very few women uh, in senior management when I was in it, probably about 2 or 3%. And I saw people you know, at senior positions you know, on a night out after a, uh, an event, and they're just chasing down women, even though they're all married men, senior married men, and they would just use their power and influence. And it was almost like, they needed to do it in front of everybody else to demonstrate that they could try and pull. So somebody once said, what's the difference between men and women? And I thought it was quite an interesting response. Is it, the difference between men and women is simple. A woman can use sex to get what she wants. A man cannot because well, sex is what he wants. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think there is a, an element of that. A brief story. Um, one of the, you, you said about blindsided. I got really, really caught out in, February, I did a, a virtual presentation to a one of the top public schools in Britain. I go to school every year, do a presentation live, been fine. Did it virtual. It's about 150, 206 form boys, all boys school. I was using a product called Aha Slides, which enables, which basically means that people can ask questions, or the way I'd set it up, people could ask questions throughout. The presentation. So as I was doing a presentation, I said, just ask questions and I'll have a little look at it and uh, we'll pick questions up as we go along. The first time I started to look at the questions, I realized I was probably having a problem, but I 
couldn't at that stage do anything about it to stop it because I didn't know exactly how to stop access. When I looked afterwards, I realized uh, I'd got about 200, 250 questions. About 50 boys had been asking those questions. They broke into two groups. There were the LGBT groups saying, do you see, we told you this was happening. And the other ones were basically asking the most offensive, obscene questions it was possible to ask. Some of them were actually, because it was all could all be anonymous, or you could put your name in. Some of them were putting in the names of boys they wanted to bully and then asking questions which, which would be embarrassing for them for anyone to have asked. Um, they were voting up the really bad um, questions. There were comments about me. There were comments about other people. And there was just rampant homophobia amongst this small group of people. And I just had to say, okay, fine, we'll, we'll skip the questions. Answered a couple that were re- reasonable, but I realised there was no way for me to handle it. And it had just gone, gone, gone berserk. Most of them weren't even listening to the last half an hour of the talk. They were just engaged in this, uh, let's see if I can ask a worse question than the last one. So what did that teach you? That taught me a couple of things. One is don't allow 16, 17-year-old boys access to anonymous questions <laughs> while doing a presentation. The second one was be very careful about allowing people to ask questions and engage on chat while you're doing presentation, because otherwise you'll lose the whole audience if it gets a bit... Um, I've seen that happen in other places. The worst thing I learned from that was that these boys are all fast-tracking into senior, senior leadership. They're in family firms. They're in, you know, polit- they're sons of politicians and business leaders. They will be leading our business within the next 10 years. One way or another, they're going to be up there. But although we think homophobia is being tackled by the laws, it's been literally pushed under. And I think what we saw with Brexit was that it almost became permissible to voice bigoted views because we started to see the whole stuff about you know, Turkey and everything else. And it was almost that because the politicians had actually made it possible for us to talk about this, everybody then suddenly was doing it. Now, it isn't about somebody got into a big battle with one of the conservative politicians on this same argument. What I noticed was that most bigots also tended to be Brexit supporters. That wasn't to say that Brexit supporters are bigots. It's the other way around. It's just that the group of people who are bigots all tended to polarise in that same thing. It's all a white... That that whole right-wing movement, which is very anti-diversity, suddenly was given permission to voice their opinions. Well, over the last 30 years, the the right has shifted the narrative. Yeah. It's certainly in the US, they've been very successful doing this with their PACs, their political action committees, where they are funded by often extremely wealthy industrialists with a strong conservative religious leaning. And they've been very clever in how they shifted the narrative. And you only have to look at, you know, Brexit probably wouldn't have been possible uh, without that shift in the narrative. You look at Hungary, you look at Brazil, India. Um, the, yeah. you know, the nar- narrative has moved to the right considerably and the middle ground has been lost. So what I'm curious about is how to come back from that 
whilst maintaining a moderate perspective and not adding fuel to the fire, because that's the difficult part. One interesting thing, study I've seen in Kenya, uh, Kenya had a really, really bad problem with girls being sexually abused and raped, schoolgirls. Most of it was happening with boys that they knew. So they were going on a date with a boy and they'd end up unable to control it and get raped or abused. And this is often the case in the UK as well. You know, rape isn't from you know some stranger leaping out in the dark. It's usually someone they know, and it gets out of control. And and the arguments will be, well, they said that they, you know, it looked as if they said they wanted it. They, and it's all about, you know, I read signals which said it was okay, and not getting no means no. So what they did was they in Kenya was they decided to tackle the problem of girls being sexually abused and raped. They would teach the girls how to defend themselves more effectively. So they had a whole campaign for a couple of years showing girls what they could do, teaching them self-defense, teaching them how to not get into bad situations in the first place, and a whole gambit of errors saying that women got to take responsibility for themselves. We'll teach these girls how to do it. And at the end of two years, absolutely no change at all. The number of girls being raped and sexually abused was exactly the same. So they switched tack, and they decided the thing to do now was target the boys and teach them to respect girls, teach them not to abuse, teach them no means no, and teach them how to be respectful human beings. Within two years, they had cut the sexual abuse and rape uh, rates by 50%. It's interesting. There was a a campaign that was run in Ireland to uh, stop deaths on the road, and they targeted 18 to 24-year-olds. And they told, they essentially um, told the narrative of what happens to the families of the victims of the people they end up killing. And they reduced their death on the roads by 40%. If you don't go to the source, if you don't go to the cause, yes, you're just putting lipstick on a pig. And that's really not going to deliver the result. Too often, we end up looking at the symptom rather than the cause. Absolutely. There's no question about it. these boys at the school, obviously in a, growing up in an environment where these attitudes towards homosexuality, trans and towards women, you know, the, the stuff that comes back to me is a direct reflection of the fact. I, I thought it was all about being trans, but I began to realise more and more it's just about me being treated the same way women are. And a uh, number of times I've explained what's happened to me. Uh, I was standing, just come out of a hotel, going to go to a, I was doing a sort of dra- a drag tag gig. I was just dressed no- just as a woman, but in normal clothes, I had a bag with my costume in to take. And somebody walked up to me and I, it was a bit of a low cut top. I said, excuse me, you have very nice breasts. I would like to go to bed with you. I thought, <laughs> I just, I, I just never... It, Never experienced that kind of thing happening. I walked past a bar at 11 o'clock on my own, and it just happened people were coming out. And next thing I know, I've got somebody trying to chat me up. Can I walk you home? Where's your boy? And I'm thinking, what, what is going on? Most women I know would say, oh, my God, you weren't working on your own at 11 o'clock. God, no, I would never do that. But growing up as a man, I never even thought twice. Walk down the street at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. Nothing ever happens. But if a woman on her own, Totally different environment. So, you know, until we start to tackle that, not only are women, uh, uh, you know, 
not safe, but trans women are not safe. Gay men are not safe. Anybody who's different is not safe until we start to tackle this problem. And that has to be started right the, the way it's at, at school. It's a serious shift that's got to take place. And I, I don't know how we're going to do it. It'll probably take a couple of generations to, to really work it through. But I do what I can within what I do. Excellent. Ricky Arundel, thank you so much. How do people get hold of you? Right. I've got two websites at rickyarundel.com, currently undergoing major surgery, but it's uh, going to be there, or genderspeaker.com. All the information about gender stuff is there. If anybody's interested in uh, talking to me about doing some workshops and training for their organization, then uh, genderspeaker.com. There's lots of background information there. Excellent. And if you had to recommend some reading or content to help people better understand gender difference? Yeah, there's going to be a couple of things I'm putting up on my site shortly. I've just written a, a just finishing writing a, a, a sort of ebook that's going to be available. It's difficult to say that there's quite a lot of uh, stuff that's been written for various different ages. And I think it depends a little bit on what you're doing. One of the people who influenced me quite a lot is Stephen Whittle. And Stephen has written quite a few things. Quite academic is Professor Stephen Whittle, so it'll give you some uh, sense. Trans man, he's uh, a professor of qualities, has been very, very instru- influential right across the globe in helping change attitudes to trans people. He was very much the primary consultant to all the trans side of the equality law. So anything written by Stephen is really useful uh, information. Other than that, I think that there's just a lot of quite good material around. It's worthwhile. If you're interested in the areas of non-binary, there are some young people coming around who've produced some quite interesting material. Stonewall, the charity Stonewall for LGBTQ stuff, uh, stonewall.org. Anyway, just look up Stonewall. It'll, it'll come there. Have an enormous amount of free information that you can download that helps to understand a lot more about the whole LGBTQ in the past few years, have been really focusing on trans. So there's a lot of trans stuff there. Excellent. Ricky, thank you so much. This has been incredibly enlightening. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful and helpful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you know somebody who would be affected positively by this conversation, then please tag them or send them a link via private message. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, you can contact me, marcus at laughs-last.com, or direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.